0: I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. We'll be looking at chapters 24 and 25. To do that, I'd like to open us our time in the Word with a word of prayer. Lord, we don't come to Your Word lightly. For we recall that it was by Your Word that You created everything. Lord, Your Word is the most powerful force in all creation. So we come to it even with a, with a sense of anticipation, but also with fear and trembling. For we know that it is ultimately by Your Word that each one of us will be judged. And so we ask for assistance to understand it. Assistance to apply it. Lord, our greatest need is is to see You for who You are. And we pray that You would open our minds, open our hearts, that we might behold Your majesty and Your glory in Your Word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Although I'm just middle-aged, Uh, One of the things that I have witnessed frequently in my life is the reality of having great hope, but also experiencing great disappointment. At every stage in life, we set our hopes on various things. And more often than not, we find ourselves disappointed. And what child is there who hasn't greatly anticipated the coming of Christmas? They're longing to get that gift that they've set their mind upon. And either they didn't receive the gift or maybe just a short time later it broke. Or maybe they actually did get that gift and it lasted, but it never gave them the anticipated joy and satisfaction that they were hoping. And soon they wanted another. Or what about even... Your first crush. You found out that that handsome fellow in your class. Also had eyes for you. And maybe you had a chance to go on a date with him. and Or to a big dance. And you wondered afterwards. Maybe this is the one. But then you found out short time later, that he was actually just a big jerk. Or maybe even he was the one and you married him. And you found out after you tied the knot that he wasn't as selfless and as caring. And as kind as he was when you were dating. Remember how greatly you anticipated that first job opportunity. And after they had presented you the contract with these great benefits and this this salary that you actually hadn't expected. And you remember thinking, just wait till my friends find out where I'm working. Then after a few years, you discovered that boss really wasn't as great as you thought. And the pressure to perform was killing your soul. You actually felt more like a slave than a success. And so we set our, our hearts on new hopes. Only to find those hopes to be disappointments in the end. And the pattern continues until little hope remains in this life. And you pass away. And it's done. And of course, not everything falls apart like this. Sometimes we have blessings come into our life by God's grace that are far greater than we could have ever imagined. But more often than not, I think this is the pattern. We have great hope, great expectation. Maybe it's in having children. Maybe it's finally going on that vacation that we go on. And yet time and time again... Those things that we hope to bring satisfaction are just disappointments. And so we go to bed staring at the ceiling. Feeling all alone. And wondering to ourselves. Does any hope remain? The answer to that question is yes. In fact, that is the point of the passage before us here in Leviticus 24 and 25, to give you hope. And to give you a hope that is guaranteed not to disappoint. We're nearing the close of our study of Leviticus, which was written in order to provide Israel with instructions on how they could dwell in the presence of God. And we've now come to chapters 24 and 25, where God actually provides a picture of what his ultimate purpose is for Israel. He presents to them a vivid reminder of why he has given them all of these instructions in Leviticus. And really, all these instructions are given that they might know how they can come and appear in his presence. And then afterwards, how they can dwell in his presence. And this is actually what is depicted by the lamp and the bread that we see in verses one through nine of Leviticus twenty-four. So note there, for in chapter twenty-four, the the lamp and the bread in the sanctuary. The lamp that gets described here in verses one through four is what is known as the menorah, or it's the seven, the lamp with seven wicks, and and we see that it's. Fueled, actually, by pure olive oil that is brought by the generosity of the Israelites themselves. And it was placed in the tabernacle in order to be a continual source of light. In fact, if you, if you look at verses 2, 3, and 4, you'll see the repetition of the word continually. And this really identifies the point of the lamp. It was to be a continual source of light. It was never to go out. In fact, uh, God tells Moses in the book of Exodus, Exodus 25, verse 27, he says, Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Jason, if you could get the, the clicker to me, I'll take care of the... Sorry. realize I have slides that I'm supposed to show and I haven't shown any of them. I'm holding out on everyone. There we go. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. So the the, the design again of this lamp was to shed light upon the space in front of the the lampstand. Well, actually, what was in front of the lampstand was this table that had 12 cakes of bread upon it. And that's what's described in verses 5 through 9. The priests were commanded to make 12 cakes of bread and to place those cakes in two rows of six. And along with this bread, they were supposed to sprinkle frankincense. And according to verse 8, you'll notice that they were commanded to do this continually. And so the lamp and the bread really serve as this picture ...of God's continual presence with Israel. It's the blessing of being in covenant with God. The twelve cakes of bread represent Israel basking in the presence of the glory of God represented by the lamp. In fact, this is actually what's depicted in the Aaronic blessing... ...that we actually use frequently for our benedictions... If you look at Numbers chapter 6 verse 22, notice what this blessing says again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. It's really this blessing that's being pictured by this lamp and the bread. A picture of God's people basking in the light of His glory. But there's a little bit more to this lamp that you will recognize. Now, you might recall just a, a few been, I can't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago. The prohibitions that were given to the Israelites to not give their children up to Molech. And you recall that Solomon disobeyed that prohibition and actually built a altar to Molech. And you might recall that the Lord then brought judgment upon Solomon and his house. And in what the Lord did is he actually raised up a man named Jeroboam and Jeroboam split Israel and he established what became known as the northern kingdom of 10 tribes. But there were still two tribes that remained in the south, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And as the Lord explains to Jeroboam how he will use him to bring judgment upon the house of Solomon, he says this. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. That's first Kings eleven, verse thirty-six. And in, in this promise of a future lamp actually gets repeated a number of times in the Old Testament. In first Kings fifteen four, second Kings eight nineteen, also Second Chronicles twenty one seven. And similarly, we know that the prophet Isaiah spoke of a Future lamp that was to come. In Isaiah 9 2, the prophet writes, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And of course, you might remember that Matthew speaks of the Messiah, that this Text was actually fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he came into Galilee of the Gentiles. Moreover, we also know that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in Israel, all of this imagery of Israel basking in the glory of this lamp will finally be fulfilled by Christ. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 22, verse 5. We, we read Revelation 21. For the scripture reading today, and just a few verses later in Revelation 22, verse 5, we read this. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever you see that Jesus was ultimately the fulfillment of everything that God was depicting here in the tabernacle. And especially this lamp. He would bring about a time when his people would be able to continually bask in the presence of his glory without any sorrow, without any harm that could befall them. And so after gazing at this picture of The lamp and the bread in Leviticus were presented then with another picture that actually serves as a foil because it's a a sharp contrast to what we see. It's a picture of a blasphemer in Leviticus 24, verse 10. Read with me this story. Now, the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled, struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shemalith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "...bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native." when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. We see that the man's crime was just that he had blasphemed. To blaspheme just simply means to, to curse God, or to slander, to disrespect, or to degrade God. And to attack God's name really is akin to attacking God personally. And this is why death was necessary for the blasphemer. In fact, you'll notice in verses 17 through 23, God explains his judgment for this blasphemer being death by referring to the principle of lex talionis. That's a fancy Latin phrase, meaning the, the principle of the law of retaliation. Lex talionis is the law of retaliation. And and we see that that's the purpose of this because of verse 23. This is the the principle for why God says the man must die. The reason for this addendum regarding the Lex talionis. What's this connection between the principle of retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and the name of God, blasphemy. Well, you might recall the setting when this principle was first established, the, the principle of, of uh, a capital punishment for murder. It was established in Genesis chapter 9, immediately after Noah had landed the ark on Mount Ararat, set up a, a, um, a, an altar and gave thanks to God. And then God commands this in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The reason men who murder are to be murdered is because men were made in the image of God. They are God's representatives. To attack God's image is to attack God. And see, that's why blasphemy warrants death. Because in attacking God's name, you are attacking God. Because it degrades and dishonors his name. It's on par with murder. So just as to murder a man is to attack the image of God, to curse God's name is to attack the image of God. And this is why the Pharisees blasphemy against Christ, which is, essentially just attributing his works to the power of Satan, that's why it is that sin is described as the unpardonable sin. Flip in your Bibles to Matthew 12, verse 30, where we have this account. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. What's what's being described here is that despite, despite clear and incontrovertible evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, that His work was being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, they reject Jesus and they claim that His power is only being performed by Satan. They had the light of the world in front of Him, and yet they rejected Him. To reject Jesus is to reject God. And that's also why this blasphemer in Leviticus was put to death outside the camp. That is, he was being permanently removed from God's presence. And again, just as the the story of the blasphemer is a picture of the future I'm oh, sorry, just sorry, just as the picture of the lamp and the bread are a picture of heaven, a picture of our future with God in heaven, likewise this picture of the blasphemer that's presented is a picture of the future of those who reject Christ. That's why it's here. It's ultimately a picture of hell. Revelation 22:15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Like that that, that verse is given to to demonstrate that not all will come and enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. Outside, away from his presence, are all those who have rejected Christ. Christ. And so this story stands as a warning. To blaspheme the Lord's name is to reject the Lord. And therefore to reject the presence of God for all eternity. That brings us to chapter 25. Gives us a picture. Promises of rest, freedom, and an Inheritance. In chapter twenty five the Lord declares that the land of Israel itself will be required to take a Sabbath every seven years and it's actually during this seven years that the land it will have to remain follow it won't be, uh, it can't be cultivated it can't no seed can be sown, no harvest can be reaped and whatever the land did produce on its own would then be free pickings for anyone in Israel, whether that's an animal or Any man that happened to come upon fruit of the land. And interestingly, in the next chapter, chapter 26, Israel is warned that if they fail to honor this seven year Sabbath, they would be cast out of the land for doing so. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. We know from history that Israel failed to take God's warning here seriously and we learn this in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days, days of desolation, it kept Sabbath until the 70 years were complete. So what God is saying here is you will keep this seven-year Sabbath, whether you choose to or not. Because if you choose not to, you will be cast out. And of course, that's what happened. God is guaranteeing that His land will get this seven-year rest. Whether Israel would cooperate or not. He also guarantees that all the people will be granted freedom and that all the people would receive their promised inheritance. And this is, in fact, the the point of the jubilee year that is then described in verses 8 through 17. So you have a weekly Sabbath every seven days. You'd have a Sabbath. You'd have a seven-year Sabbath. And then you'd have every set of seven-year Sabbaths a jubilee year. So every 50th year, there was a jubilee year. It's called a jubilee year because during that 50th year, after the forty-nine. You have the 50th. During that Jubilee year, they would blow horns made of a ram's horn. Trumpets made of a ram's horn. And the the word for the word Jubilee basically means ram's horn. And like the typical Sabbath year, the land would lie rest and it would be fallow. And additionally, this 50th year also signaled the release of all debts. All indentured servants would be free from any debt that they owed their debtors. They would also be free to return to their homes. And also, all of the inherited land would return to its original owners. This is made explicit in verse 23. The land, moreover, you shall not... Sorry, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. For you're but aliens and sojourners with me. And this principle that the land and the people both belong to God is the principle that you see repeated throughout this chapter. They belong to me. Since they had God's name upon them, God would be guaranteeing them rest and freedom and an inheritance. So the Jubilee year and the seven year rest was a guarantee that that rest would come to pass. Similarly, when we put our signature or our name on something, we're guaranteeing by our name the document that we're signing. If it's a check or a credit card receipt, we're guaranteeing that we have the money to back up what we're purchasing. If it's a... Contract. We're guaranteeing that we're going to be faithful to the stipulations of of the terms. And since the land and the people have God's signature on them, He is guaranteeing them rest. He's guaranteeing them freedom. He's guaranteeing them an inheritance. And so the governing principle behind the laws that follow of the redemption and property and laws regarding the poor it's remembering that ultimately all of these things belong to God. They have his name upon them. So look at the, the, the laws regarding the redemption of property, beginning in verse 23. Since all the land belonged to God, he said that he would be giving each of the 12 tribes a portion of the land as an inheritance. And in this section, he's providing the means whereby he will guarantee that they will get that inheritance. During the Jubilee year, all the land needed to be returned to its original owners. But in the non-Jubilee years, if that land had been sold, that they could still purchase that land back. It always needed to be available to purchase back to the original owners because of what the Lord says here. If they didn't have um, a nearest kinsman, sorry, if they didn't have the the means to purchase it back they could have a nearest kinsman purchase back for from them or sorry for them but if there was no family member no kinsman to purchase it back for them they would have to wait until the 49 years were up and then they could have it returned to them then in verses 35 through 46 we are given laws regarding indentured servants caring for the poor Because it wasn't just the land that belonged to God, but actually all the people belonged to God. And this principle protected that they would always have opportunity to have freedom. Particularly freedom for indentured servants. Because in that time, if a person had a crop failure and and they couldn't pay their debts for something, the, the, the primary means of paying their debt back would either be going to their you know rich uncle who might provide for them but if they don't have a rich uncle the the primary means of having their debt paid would be to basically sell themselves into servitude and they would serve their debtor the, the man who or or woman who offered them money they would serve that person until that debt was paid this was, again, the most common means of paying back a debt. And this was actually the most common means of paying back a debt in all of history. Most of the people who came from the old world to the new world on the Mayflower were indentured servants. My ancestors were indentured servants. They couldn't pay for the passage. And so they told one of the the wealthy people on the Mayflower that they would serve them for a certain period of time, maybe five years, until they paid their their, their debt back. And then after they paid their debt back, they were called freedmen. In fact, today in the Northeast, there's still a society of the freedmen for all the descendants of those who were indentured servants who then paid back their debt. Well, if an Israelite fell into poverty, God makes it clear that they were not to be taken advantage of. And in particular, notice verse 36, that they could not be charged interest. Now, Gentiles, it says, could be charged interest, but not a fellow Israelite. And it's actually, this law is the reason that the Jews historically were vilified, because they would charge non-Jews, Gentiles, exorbitant rates of interest, but they wouldn't charge any interest for their fellow countrymen. And and that, of course, made many Gentiles angry, and that was the the reason for a lot of their persecution. Historically speaking, particularly during the medieval ages. Nor could the Jews enslave a fellow Jew, it says in verse 39. And the reason is given in verse 42. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. God had already purchased every single Israelite when he redeemed them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from Pharaoh. They were now His. They could not be purchased from God. He would not allow that. Nor has He allowed that. God had already purchased them. They belonged to Him. This is also the reason for the the laws regarding redemption of a poor man in verses 47 through 55. Any person who fell into indentured servitude could like the land, be redeemed at any time, as long as there was somebody who was willing to pay their debt. So the same principles that govern redemption for the land also apply to the redemption of people. Like land, like people. Both belong to God. And notice again how God closes the section. Verse 55. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God. So in summary, belonging to God, having His name upon them, came with certain guarantees. And God wanted to provide continual reminders of these guarantees. So just as the lamp and the showbread ritual that's described in chapter 24 served as a reminder of God's continued blessing, Sabbath after Sabbath, uh, and, and also pointed to a future promise of a Sabbath rest. Likewise, the seven-year Sabbath and the, seven, the, the 49 or 50-year Sabbath served as a continual reminder for God's people that there remained a guaranteed rest. There would always remain a guaranteed opportunity for freedom. There would always remain a guaranteed inheritance. And of course, all of these things point forward to an ultimate rest. A time when all of these things would become permanent during a great jubilee year that would be brought about by the coming of the Messiah, again depicted by the lamp and the showbread. Isaiah spoke of this great Jubilee Sabbath in Isaiah 66. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year is speaking of the day when the Messiah would finally come and He would proclaim the great jubilee when all of that inheritance would be returned. All people would be freed from their slavery. All would finally enter their rest. And this was the text that Jesus quoted when He first proclaimed who He was to the people of Nazareth. You might recall in Luke 40, chapter 20, he says, it says that he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what Jesus was saying? When Jesus comes and starts His ministry, this is the text He goes to. He's saying, today is the day when the great jubilee year has arrived. Today, now, finally, you can have your rest. I've come to bring rest. I've come to bring freedom. I've come to give you an inheritance that has been guaranteed for you. But as we know, His people rejected the light of the world. They rejected His miracles. They claimed that He was demon-possessed. And they eventually crucified Him on an account of blasphemy. They rejected the One who came to finally give them rest. Why? Because He wasn't what they expected. They, they, They looked for this great year of jubilee, this ultimate jubilee. They were looking for the Messiah. But, but He is not what they expected. They were unaware that the Scriptures were in fact pointing to Him. They didn't understand how much they needed Him. There's a, a famous painting that once hung in the Louvre in Paris called The Chess Player. It's painted by Friedrich Moritz August Rich. And it depicts a young man playing chess with the devil. And on one side of the table sits the devil with his hand upon a chess piece. And he's glaring at the man in front of him with a gleeful glint in his eye. And on the other side is the young man, full of defeat, grinding his teeth in despair as he looks at the chessboard in front of him. Paul Morphy, who was a world-class chess champion from Louisiana, came to view the painting in 1858. And seeing this, this picture is really a painting of this man's battle with Satan for his own soul. Seeing that, 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 that this man had to win in order to save his soul from Satan, he took it upon himself as a challenge to see was there a way? And so he sat and stared at this painting for a time. Ten minutes. He went through all the possible moves that could be left. Twenty minutes. Fifty minutes. Staring at the painting, was there another way? And after a long time, he exclaimed, Quick, bring me a chessboard! It's a lie! The king has one more move! There's another move! But then he thought to himself, Wait, this is just a painting. The man can't hear me. The man can't even see But you're not so blind. Because Jesus Christ has been clearly portrayed to you in the book of Leviticus. He has been clearly portrayed to you in Old Testament pictures and in New Testament revelation. And in fact, your need for Christ is displayed to you day after day as you experience disappointments in the hopes that never pan out. Because the reality is, there is nothing in this life that will ever satisfy you. Everything that you set your hope upon will one day disappear. And in fact, the reality is, though we don't like to talk about it, you will one day breathe your last. You know, uh, as I was studying this passage this week, I noted how many pastors and theologians noted how difficult, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to apply. And as I prayed about this, I, I honestly, I just, I just wondered, well, the clearest application is our need for Christ. And maybe that's why God has this passage here today. Because Could it be that there is somebody here who has never actually surrendered their life to Jesus Christ? And that's why the Lord would have us preach on this passage right now. Or maybe even, maybe there's somebody here today who needs to hear this message because death is at their door. And they've heard the message before. And they've heard time and time again, if you would surrender your life to Christ, repent from your sin and follow Him, you can have freedom from your sin. And maybe the Lord, in His sovereignty, He knows the days each of us have in our life. He knows when each of us will finally give our last breath, and enter in His presence. And maybe He knows that one of you, and I'm being dead earnest right now, maybe He knows that one of you has just days left, maybe hours, and He knows that this is your last chance. And so in His sovereignty, He presents a passage like Leviticus 24 and 25 That you might see once again. Maybe for the last time, you might have the opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. Because it may be your last opportunity. There is no longer any question of who the Messiah is. Through Him, and through Him alone, can you be freed from your slavery to sin? Through him alone can you find rest for your soul? The question that remains for you today is will you receive him? Maybe you would. But you th- as you think about what tomorrow might look like, you can't imagine yourself not sinning because your life has been characterized by sin. You've been a slave to sin, and you can't imagine giving up that sin that you so love. Well, this is what the Bible says in Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where Christ is, there is liberty. You can have freedom for your sin. Are you tired of seeing everything around you just fall apart? Are you tired of seeing your hopes dashed? Are you tired of all the losses? The Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus has provided for us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Are you just try, tired of failing? Putting your effort, all of your effort into something and then falling on your face? Are you tired of giving into sin? Tired of trying to be a good person and just turning again and sinning? Here again, the offer of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is life. My burden is light. Don't you desire freedom from your sin? Don't you desire rest? Don't you desire at some point to know, to have a guarantee that there's rest around the bin? That that there's going to be something that won't fade away, there's going to be something that won't break. An eternal inheritance. Don't you desire freedom? Freedom from sin. Then come to Him. Trust in Him. Call out to Him to forgive you. Turn from your sin. Lord, You do know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our rising. You know our going down. And You know the minutes that we have left upon this earth. And Lord, I would just ask that You might work in power now. Lord, that You might examine each of our hearts and that if there is anyone here today that does not genuinely know You, who has not surrendered their life to You to follow You and trust You and live for You, that You would help them to see that that there is salvation found in no one else and that today, is the day of salvation. Christ, we thank You that You have not left us to ourselves for we could not earn our salvation. Simply in Your mercy, You have condescended taking our sin upon You, bearing the price of our sin on the cross that we might be freed. And so it's in your name alone that we boast. It's in your name alone that we exalt. And it is in your name alone that we glory. There are no heroes here. And we love that. There are simply servants and worshipers of you. Because from you and to you and through you are all things. And only you deserve worship. Give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ.